0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. When historians get together to choose the gods for their pantheon, a few names continually rise to the top. From ancient Greece, Herodotus and Thucydides. From Rome, Tacitus and Livy and Sallust. And from 18th century England, Edward Gibbon, often called the father of modern history. Gibbon's history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire was a towering success in its time, and its influence continues to this day. Who was Edward Gibbon? What made his work stand apart? And what does a contemporary historian inherit from him today? Zachary Carabell, author of more than a dozen books, including Inside Money, and co-host of the podcast What Could Go Right, Is here to help us answer those questions today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today. Edward Gibbon, this is the kind of inspirational figure. I love learning about. He kind of came from nowhere. He pops up and, and reinvigorates the way we think about history, working alone and astonishing those who knew him. This is the century I love best. I think, as you know, my hero, Dr. Johnson, lived then. I know these dudes were flawed, but I still like spending time in their company. Those two were in the same circle, Johnson and Gibbon, and yet Johnson, frankly couldn't stand him. But that's nothing new for Johnson and nothing to turn me off of someone. I suspect I would have liked a lot of people whom Johnson couldn't stand. And those who triggered Johnson's ire personally or his dyspepsia as a critic have given us some of Johnson's greatest quotes. Ticked off Johnson is one of my favorite varieties of the good doctor. His main objection to Gibbon was that he was an infidel. As Johnson put it, he attacked the church in that magnum opus of his, and for Johnson, that could not stand. They recalled, Johnson and his friends recalled, that Gibbon had wavered a bit religiously when he was at college. He had become a Catholic for a while, or as they put it, a papist. He's a friend to all true Christian foes, Johnson once put it in a poem. Sort of a, I don't care what you think personally, you don't have to give aid and comfort to the enemy. Did Gibbon's book do that? Well, perhaps. A sneering infidel, Johnson called him. It's probably an oversimplification to say that Gibbon blamed the rise of Christianity for the fall of the Roman Empire. He also blamed the loss of civic virtue the importation of vices acquired by Roman soldiers from their battles in far-off lands, the corruption of the emperors, and the invasions of barbarians. Gibbon was critical of most religions or superstitions or supernatural beliefs. He believed strongly in reason and in the triumphs of his own age, brought about by rational beliefs. In his view, not for Mr. Gibbon, the medieval monks and priests, those were Dark Ages. He was not much of a fan of any current religions, then-current religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. He praised the pagans. Paganism was at least tolerant. Of other viewpoints, Christianity, according to Mr. Gibbon, was intolerant. As we'll discuss with our guest, it's a bit rich to say that an empire declined for something like 1500 years, most empires would be glad to have that as their <laughs> entire duration. Gibbon himself said the story of the empire's ruin is simple and obvious, and instead of inquiring why the Roman Empire was destroyed, we should rather be surprised that it had subsisted for so long. It kind of begs the question, though the longer the time period, the harder it is to sort out the reasons and factors or to apply those reasons. To the present day. Let's hear some more about Edward Gibbon. I wouldn't say this is a full episode on him, so please don't expect that. What we have instead is a quick overview, and then we'll hear from our guest today, who's just the sort of guy who would have been a key part of the Johnsonian circle, a wide-ranging polymath who's also a specialist with pockets of deep expertise that he displays from book to book. What he doesn't have And what almost nobody has these days is a book on the scale of Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall, six volumes. I'm not sure the publishing world would accept it. Even in Gibbon's day, it was viewed as incredibly long, formidably thorough, exhaustive, and, some might have said, exhausting. The Duke of Gloucester, the brother of the king, George III, for those of you doing a little historianing of your own, Gibbon was permitted to give the Duke the first volume of his masterwork, dedicated it to him as well. And then the second book came out and the prince was in line for another presentation. He greeted Gibbon with a big smile and said, another damned thick square book. It's scribble, 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 eh, Mr. Gibbon? Scribble, scribble, scribble. And yet those scribblings have enlightened many and inspired many others as well. It's the sort of book that historians have held up and admired since the beginning, starting with contemporaries like David Hume. Gibbon was born in 1737 in Surrey, in Putney, in fact, which borders London, and which I understand is now more considered part of London. It's on the Thames, a few miles southwest of Buckingham Palace, if that helps orient you. His grandfather was rich and went bankrupt and earned it all back. His father was an MP. He was one of seven children, and the other six all died in infancy. My God, just imagine that. He himself was a sickly child and not very happy. In his memoirs, he said that he was, quote, a puny child neglected by my mother, starved by my nurse, end quote. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was your childhood? His mother died when he was a boy, and he was sent off to school. He was a great reader, and he eventually made it to Oxford. Things did not go so well there. He wound up converting to Roman Catholicism based on some influences of grown men there. It was later disputed who exactly held sway over him in those days. But in any case, his father was furious when he found out, and he sent him off to Switzerland. While Gibbon was in Switzerland, he met the love of his life. He didn't have many loves. This was one, a woman named Suzanne. And this is an interesting, there's some interesting overlaps with history and literature, which I'll get to in a moment. The two were in love and he proposed marriage, but his father objected to the match and she would not leave Switzerland. So finally... He returned, Gibbon returned to England on his father's orders, and from there cut things off with Suzanne. She waited for a while, said she would always wait for him, but he was done. The break was clean. I sighed as a lover, he said. I obeyed as a son. She then married a famous finance minister and banker, Jacques Necker. Necker's all over the place in the history of the French Revolution. And the two of them, Jacques and Suzanne, had an even more famous daughter, Madame de Stael. Wow. Gibbon was writing and traveling now, gaining some success in Paris and Switzerland. And then, the moment of moments, he finally went to the great source of his dreams and hopes and desires. Here's how he put it. Quote, I can neither forget nor express the strong emotions which agitated my mind, as I first approached and entered the Eternal City. After a sleepless night, I trod with a lofty step the ruins of the Forum. Each memorable spot where Romulus stood or Tully spoke or Caesar fell was at once present to my eye, and several days of intoxication were lost or enjoyed before I could descend to a cool and minute investigation." It's a wonderful passage, that's end quote. It's a wonderful passage, both the awe and wonder and the eventual dissension, what a great word, into a cool and minute investigation. The several days of intoxication were lost or enjoyed, lost or enjoyed. Isn't that great? Was it a waste of time, or was it simply the greatest thing ever? Those days of intoxication? Wandering around Rome. We don't always know, do we? Or we do know, or maybe it's just both. Lost implies that what he really wanted or needed to do or felt he ought to do is get to that cool and minute investigation, although that was a dissension. It was a coming down. But work needed to be done. He thought, I'm going to write a history of Rome. And then he thought, no, this will need to be the entire empire, in fact what was his moment? What was the moment? He sat musing amidst the ruins of the capital while the barefooted friars were singing vespers in the temple of Jupiter. That's when he had the epiphany. That's a hard image to escape. And it brings with it the seedlings of the stance that later made him famous. I've felt it too. You walk into the pantheon knowing what it was in Rome, a pantheon, literally a pantheon to gods, pan meaning all, and theon meaning gods, all gods. It was where the multiplicity of Roman gods worshipped. And you see it now, and it's full of Christian paintings, paintings of Christian scenes, which, of course, is a religious that has one god. Sites like this abound in Rome, places that were once the province of Romans and centurions, and are now Christianized. You're there imagining a Caesar and you're thinking, wait, this is the Pope's town now. It's hard not to think that Gibbon, a small part of him, he's so intelligent that maybe this is <laughs> it's probably dumbing him down a little bit, but it, it's hard not to think he spent some time thinking, how did this happen? Look at the majesty of these ruined columns and the Colosseum and the great empire of roads and aqueducts and the whole genius of Rome. And look what's here now. These monks singing, walking barefoot. That's what won. That triumphed. That replaced. How did that happen? Okay, so Gibbon got to work, scribbling away. Scribble, scribble, scribbling away. He started with some other histories, the history of Switzerland. He started on, which he abandoned, some literature books, some memoirs that flopped. He was enough of a literary figure to make it into Johnson's famous club in London, and he became a professor, and he became an MP, as his father had been. He was wealthy enough not to have to worry too much about money. And then he spent, five years after he went to Rome, he spent seven years working on the first volume of his book, and then a second volume and a third came out, all smash successes, publishing-wise. He had some ailments like gout and a very unpleasant-sounding ailment that involved some kind of scrotal swelling. That surgeons tackled with multiple operations, but with no success. And he finally died from complications that came from one of those operations. Not a great ending. It's the kind of ending to a great life that makes you squirm in your chair a bit. Poor Gibbon never married. He died at the age of 56. Gibbon today is still quite famous, although he has his distractors as a historian. Oddly, Out of Herodotus and Thucydides and Gibbon, let's say, not a single one is viewed as necessarily historically accurate by today's standards, especially, I would say, Herodotus and Gibbon. Gibbon probably holds up the best from a modern standpoint. We can talk about that a little bit, although his central thesis regarding Christianity, at least, that part of the central thesis, has mostly been rejected by modern scholars, and a lot of his facts have been shown to be wrong by subsequent and better sources, deeper analysis, different lines of thought. In any case, he set down a kind of marker for historians of the future. First of all, his prose style is outstanding, highly engaging and readable. Winston Churchill was a huge fan and follower when writing his own histories. As he put it, it was a big story, a grand style a vivid, galloping history that roamed across time and space, enriched by analysis and reflection. Well, that's not a surprise, is it? It's the intoxicated dreamer descending into cool and minute observation. From a historian's perspective, this is the other big accomplishment. Gibbon did his best to use primary sources. That contribution cannot be underestimated. The alternative is to read previous histories. A lot of people did that. You you want to write about a topic, you read three or four historians who have come before you. Gibbon wanted to go back to original texts. Read those and then draw your analysis upon that. His, or found your analysis upon that, I should say. His personality might have helped here. He worked alone. He preferred it. He absorbed as much as he could from those original texts and then thought his way through developing his own ideas rather than relying on pre-digested ideas of others and then doggedly making the case for those ideas based on the original actual text so where did that leave where does that leave history today academic history popular history the work of understanding the past it's a big subject and one can approach it from many angles today we'll approach it with the help of of a professional historian's viewpoint. A popular historian, Zachary Carabell, who was also at Oxford, like Mr. Gibbon. Hopefully it went better for him there. I suspect that it did. He was also, Mr. Carabell has also uh, studied at Columbia and Harvard, from which he received a PhD. He's taught at Harvard and Dartmouth. Have you heard of any of these schools? (laughs) LOL. He's been a strategic investor, And he's written 11 books about a wide range of topics. Presidents, mathematics, money, economics, foreign relations. He's written for a million publications. And he's a podcast host, like me. A couple of harmless drudges in that respect. His podcast is called What Could Go Right? And he clearly is looking for the positive, the moving forward, the how do we make the world better from an economic standpoint, from a technological standpoint, from a Let's we we humans should make progress. Standpoint. Andy's a historian, writing books about moments in the past that mattered. What classic book would you like to discuss? I asked Gibbon. He responded, "Oh boy, right up my alley." Let's take a quick break and dive into the conversation with Zachary Carabell. After this. <laughs> Okay, joining me now is Zachary Carabel, the founder of the Progress Network and the co host of the podcast What Could Go Right. Zachary is the author of more than a dozen books, including the recent book Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. He joins us today to discuss Edward Gibbon. Zachary Carabell,
1: welcome to the history of literature. Thank you so much, Jackie.
0: So I was, in researching this, I was trying to find a connection between you and Edward Gibbon, and I turned to Google, and I found your names connected in a review of one of your books. I think it was from the LA Times, and the review said, Carabelle is a historian who writes prose that's more like Ernest Hemingway's than Edward Gibbons's, and yet I feel like there's some affinity there between the two of you uh, that maybe isn't reflected in prose style. And maybe we'll get to that. But let's talk about you and your background first. Uh, you've been an investor, an economist, a historian, an international relations expert. The list goes on and on. Now a podcaster, an editor, public intellectual. I'm probably missing a few. But how would you describe the career that you've had? I'm wondering if this is how you envisioned it when you started out or what your plan was and how it's kind of come to be.
1: Such a good question. And thank you for having me today. So I think I, I was pretty sure I was going to write books Mm -hmm. from a very early time in life. You know, I think as a teen, that's how I envisioned life. And I had a hankering for this idea of a public intellectual. But I think what I imagined a public intellectual to be already by then was waning as a social reality. There's an old joke that Like American intellectuals basically want to be French intellectuals, Hmm. you know, that they want to occupy this place in the firmament (laughs) and be rock stars like uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy, you know, (laughs) he goes to the clubs and goes through to the through the 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 red rope and everybody's like, oh, wow, you know, you want to be celebrities. And that doesn't that, that might have existed for a nanosecond in the 50s and 60s and 70s in the U.S. And maybe it exists a little bit in some universities. But as you know, we live in a much more atomized culture. So while I ended up writing all these books, and I would say it's a funny review in the LA Times, because I think my books are the tone and the style tends to shift depending on the topic. So if it's a more like economic topic or more of the moment, I think the prose tends to be more pared down and to the point and lacks some of the flourishes. But when it's a narrative, I did a book on the building of the Suez Canal years ago, and I think that was a more florid prose style because the topic demanded it. Mm. Anyway, I didn't expect the financial part of my career. I wasn't really looking for it, but I did get awfully bored just being a writer full stop in the late 90s. And that is by no means a reflection on my attitude about writers. It was just my own personal experience of my days that that writing full stop as an identity, as in a life, was insufficient to sort of occupy my energies and I felt restless and I felt somewhat unfulfilled and I kind of wanted to walk the walk and not just talk the talk and particularly if I was going to be a commentator about what's going on in the world today and not just an historian or a a novelist having written a few failed novels uh, I wanted to actually be engaged in the world and not just comment upon it and and I'll wrap up on this I felt like too many people who write about the world today and are either in markets or politics or you name it, don't always appreciate that it's much easier to write a 2000 word article or even a book about why we should do X, how we should tame inflation or how we should deal with Russia and the Ukraine or what we should do about China or how we should clean up the environment. And it's a lot harder to do that stuff than it is to write about the doing of that stuff or it's a different hardness. And I think it's important to recognize when you write about these things that it's, again, much easier to write a thousand word piece about why we should do X than it is to actually do X. And I wanted to be in the fray a bit more. I didn't expect to be in the financial world. And some of that was a product of 9-11 and uh, kind of a a firm I joined because they were in the World Trade Center. uh, And I was going out with a woman at the time whose father had started the company, who I then married, not the father of the woman. And I had a 20-year career in finance, and I didn't stop writing books. And then I got more into sort of the media world and writing commentary, and I was on TV for a while. So that part was completely unexpected. Uh, The book part was, I suppose, completely expected. Did you feel like, I mean, on the one hand, there's something very appealing
0: about being in finance where it gives you a way to keep score. You know that books can be kind of uh, an ivory tower sort of thing. It's kind of abstract, but if you're investing money, there's a return, and there is, you know, a a plus side and a minus side, and it's it must be satisfying to know that you made a good choice, but also that the choice and the results could be measured. Or does it seem more like? you had all this knowledge and it seemed like you could apply it because if you're able to look at things with a lot of factors and look at things in in a a small context and see the big picture as well that you just had this skill that was only being partially used in order to write books but that investing would give you a way to apply all of this knowledge and all of this kind of vision that you had.
1: I mean, look, I do think that having a background that is like non-quantitative and non purely in the financial world, a humanities background or just something else gives you a much greater sense of balance in a financial world that often lacks it. And I have to say I was I've never been a big fan of the degree to which far too many people understandably go into the financial world because they want to make money. Not that there's anything wrong with making money, but I think wanting to make money full stop as the end all and be all of one's time on the planet can be a somewhat soulless, soul-sapping endeavor Mm. and can lead to a lot of amoral, if not immoral, short-termism. And look, there are a huge number of people in the financial services world that really are client-centric and are focused on doing well for their clients. And that's far more part of that world than the traders and the hedge fund people and the investors who really are, as you just said, keeping score. And who have sufficient money beyond a certain point where the score is all that matters, right? They don't need more money. Uh, They just use the amount of money as a kind of a scorekeeping. I did better than you. And I don't think that that's particularly healthy. I mean, like human beings are competitive. I don't think the financial world is unique in its variety of human souls who are, you know, everything from totally altruistic and giving back to totally selfish and greedy. But it is a, certainly a, an industry that supports the greed a lot more than social work uh, or mm. teaching. So I think I've always had a an ambivalent at best relationship, partly because, again, it wasn't my chosen profession. It was my found or somewhat stumbled into profession. And I, I think I maintained an identity as a writer. I think look, part of the problem of my life is – I don't mean that in an existential way – is uh, <laughs> if you do too many things, you may – You may cobble together a really interesting life, but it's also hard to have the kind of impact in any one area if you are in so many different ones. And I wouldn't trade my own existence for anything, but I'm certainly aware of the degree to which uh, it has its pros and cons. Right. So
0: writing books was something you always saw that you would do. Did you grow up in a a household where this was sort of part of the dinner table conversation or did you have a teacher along the way who pointed you toward this or did you just come from nowhere?
1: I had lots of just incredible teachers who I feel are, were crucial to my development and formation. But in many ways, I sought them out because I was very drawn to ideas and drawn to books. And by the way, I, I think it's really important to remember that ideas have massive, massive impact in how we all understand the world and act in it just unlike finance or politics, the one-to-one correlation between I wrote something and that did something is much, much fuzzier. You know, it's Mm -hmm. much more like ripples in a pond. If you throw a pebble in, you know the ripples are going to hit the hither short, you just don't know when and how. You know, it it lacks the immediacy and the clarity of I said or wrote something and it did why. And I think that's fine. You have to kind of let go and be sufficiently humble and, and kind of let go of it to be in that, but I had, I had amazing teachers. You know, my mom, there were certainly books growing up and I grew up in the upper West side of Manhattan where I still live. I I moved away, but I now live again. So it's not like I was growing up on a farm in Iowa, not to say that you couldn't grow up on a farm in Iowa and and become a writer and an intellectual. I'm just saying it was kind of an overdetermined thing given where I grew up. Uh, and then I had a series of teachers who totally embraced that and look a lot of teachers, you know, for people who are teachers, you love those students who are like, want to know more and, and want to go beyond the 45 or 50 minutes. So I had a lot of teachers who were really into the fact that I was really into what they could offer. So that was a good mix, both in high school and then in college and then in grad school. Because for a while, I, I really thought I was going to be a professor and I got a Ph.D. in history and then realized I, I didn't want to be in academia. Right. So your
0: books, they've been about economics, the Suez Canal or China, the Cold War, Chester, Alan Arthur. Is there a unifying thread to what you look for to write about? Or are these just uh, discrete topics that have caught your attention along the way?
1: I thought there was a unifying thread at one point. And now I'm, I'm a little less clear about whether there's a unifying thread. I thought the unifying thread was to write about the past with an eye toward how that past informs our present hmm. and, and not just tell stories about the past. Again, I think that's great to tell amazing history about the past, but kind of like Gibbon, right? I mean, the point of writing that book was as much to explain his present, which happened to be 18th century England and and the British empire or the emerging British empire as it was to write about the past, even though 98% of it was about the past. So most of what I have written about has some toggling between let's tell these great stories Mm. of what happened in an illuminating and hopefully entertaining way, right? There's nothing worse than a book that purely is illuminating and not at all entertaining because who wants to read that, but that there is a connective tissue between what happened and what's happening mm. in the spirit of both of those things together are what allows us to make hopefully more constructive decisions about what will be you know what was what is and what will be exist on some sort of continuum and there's a link between them and so writing about the past in a way that informs the present to create a better future has been a leitmotif for me but whether or not that's really that apparent in the books that I write I have I've have absolutely no idea and I do think the style is different depending on the topics. I don't know that I have a clear, like that's a Zachary Carabell voice or style that is irrespective of subject matter. I think it changes depending on subject matter. Although, yes, I mean, there are words that I like more. People tease me about certain (laughs) words I come back to that I probably shouldn't use as much, like effervescent or ephemeral. There's only so many times you can use those words, but before someone goes, hey, wait a minute.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm interested by your response because what I was taking looking at these from the outside i thought you might say that you're interested in in systems of money and power and how those have decisions that have gone into those and how they've been sort of applied or misapplied and who made those decisions and the consequences for the world uh is that am i am i getting close to something that might interest you
1: that's totally fair yeah Uh. But I think power is often in you know in the ideas as much as it's in the people so I haven't I haven't really wanted to write biography. I did write that small biography of an obscure American president Chester Alan Arthur, but that was part of a series of short biographies of all the presidents so that was being edited by Arthur Schlesinger who you know many know is one of the great masters of 20th century history writing and, and politics. So the idea of doing that series with him was part of the appeal more than some hankering to do a biography. I always feel like biography is, it's kind of like a marriage. I mean, you better either fall in love with the person or really hate them, but <laughs> it's a long time to spend with someone and uh, longer than I yeah, want.
0: Yeah. I have interviewed so many people who've said, you know, they started out, it's like the, uh, the The Gilligan's Island three hour tour, you know, they right. started out with a, a six month project in mind, and it ended up taking seven years or something. And uh, I agree, you would better like the person you are going to be spending that much time with,
1: or really hate them. Like, yeah, you, right, something right. Th- <laughs> th- th- there better be strong enough feeling to keep th- keep you going. Uh, Annette Gordon Reed refers to you know who wrote about Sally Hemings and great historian. Uh, says she's always struck by this like the genre of hate biography mm. like for someone clearly <laughs> clearly has spent years just like I don't know how healthy that is for the to spend that time doing that yeah
0: i interviewed a man who wrote a biography of hemingway and he felt like everywhere he was turning he was finding hemingway lying and he ended up feeling like he had to write this book about a great liar and and really did not like him and but that seemed to be fine for him. It seemed to sustain him and keep him going. The one that always seemed sad to me was the uh, James Atlas uh, biography of Saul Bellow, where he started out a huge fan and then it just faded. And by the end, he seemed to have found him kind of an unpalatable person.
1: Totally. I was friends with Jim Atlas, actually mm. lived a few blocks from me, um, who was a lovely, lovely man. And I think uh, that was one of those cases where like, the book took a lot out of him yeah. and not in a good way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and then come back and we'll discuss Edward Gibbon. Okay, we're back with Zachary Carabel talking about his past, his writing life, and what he puts into his books. And we wanted to discuss with you Edward Gibbon and his famous work. I'm interested in when you discovered Edward Gibbon.
1: I think sometime when I was a teen, but I can't tell you exactly when. Late late teen? Early on. You know, because I was very drawn to the great historians, the great works, and wanted to read them and wanted to learn about them. And I read Thucydides and I read Herodotus and I read, you know, Tacitus and Livy and then started reading Mallory, not that Mallory and Lamorte d'Arturre's history, but it, it had a history-ishness. And then at some point, Gibbon. And I, I don't think I read all three volumes of Gibbon in, as a teen. I certainly read, you know, the first and then into the second. And then probably lost some steam. I had a three-volume set. However many volumes it it is, I, gu- I guess really depends now on who's printing it, right?
0: Right, right. I think I have it in one big volume.
1: Yeah. So, whatever. It's a long. It's a long book.
0: Yeah. And what drew you? other than that he was so famous and, and he's somebody everybody talks about as a historian. I mean, he's certainly one of the, the few modern historians who make it into the same conversation with Thucydides and Herodotus. What was it about his book that drew you to it? So
1: first, I took this course, and then I kept reading, Gibbon. I took this course in uh, college at Columbia on the history of Byzantium. Mm. Taught by this brilliant, strange Armenian American woman, Nina Garzoyan, who was one of the doyens of Byzantine studies. And I was struck just as I was uh, showing up in college taking a history course on the history of Islam. And I later got a Middle East studies degree at Oxford and learned Arabic and then forgot Arabic, hence why I did the Suez Canal and some of the other ones. Mm. But I was struck by how, in at least my education, which was extremely traditional and extremely good, I went to a New York school called Collegiate, which was really a tough and remains a tough curricular school, but I, I had no idea about the Eastern Roman Empire. I think I had learned the trope that we all learn about the fall of Rome in the 5th century to the you know the barbarians and the tribes and then kind of forgot the fact that there was this other empire that lasted another yeah. 800, 800 years <laughs> so you know you're given you're like oh right it's not the fall of rome was like the fall of that rome it wasn't the right. fall and of we're Ireland, not. <laughs> the whole thing um so that was number 1 and then two just the I, I think a lot of even by the later part of the 20th century a lot of us forgot that a lot of traditional history writing was beautiful writing Mm. You know, it was just like really good prose. It was really, really engaging works of literature that happened to be about things that happened as opposed to what I started to feel about academia, which is that these were knowledge volumes and footnotes and sort of compendiums of research, yeah, right. which has great value, but it's a very different thing than a book that you just want to read. Uh, And so the sheer storytelling of Gibbon and I was, you know, I didn't really have any sense then the way I've come to of who he was politically and what his agenda was and where he was placed within the kind of upper class firmament of, of England and Britain in the 18th century. And I mean, I learned all of that later. And I guess the final thing, which I don't know when this occurred to me, but it feels like it's been part of my shtick for a long time, has been. Any decline of fall that takes like 1,200 years or I guess 800 years, I mean, that's like a long, <laughs> long, like if, if it's like saying, you know, his life was cut short at 114. Uh, yeah, I mean, right. like, you know, I, I'm really amused by that, right, because like 800 years of human history is like a, a substantial portion of recorded time that people have walked to the earth and you know, were they really falling that long? I mean, that's a that's a weird decline if it's a decline. Yeah,
0: that's funny, because one of the questions I had on my list to ask you is that Gibbon didn't cover the rise of the Roman Empire, but the decline and fall. And in your other works, you seem to be looking for reasons for hope. And how do you balance optimism with, you know, these cautionary lessons from moments when history went wrong? But I guess you could say it is... If we could say right now, America will last another eight hundred years and slowly decline and fall, that would probably be kind of an optimistic. Yes, uh, so that, that's part outcome. of my point. That's part of
1: my point about the given <laughs> thing, which is it, it struck me as kind of an absurdist title. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> and I've always been surprised that not more people have reacted to it that way. In that, and this may seem like an odd analogy, but people for years have been saying, "Oh my God." is the United States falling into the Japan trap, right? Mm. Low growth, aging population, lots of debt, constantly trying to kickstart things economically, but basically you're stuck in second gear. And I have been to Japan and thought about this, and like, look, Japan has one of the highest life expectancies in the world, uh, very low crime, a lot of per capita income, healthy population, not a lot of internal conflict, high education, high literacy. Like if Japan is your worst case scenario, if that's the (laughs) thing you've got to hold up to go, oh my God, like Syria is bad, you know, Eastern Ukraine. But if Japan is your worst case scenario, you're doing okay. And back to your point of, if it takes us 100 plus years, let's say history has indeed speeded up, um, sped up. And if it takes that long to decline, and it's kind of like, eh, you know, you're not as good as you were in the 1950s, but you're not so bad. I think that's probably an equation most of us would take,
0: yeah, and people who maybe maybe they they miss this when they read it or maybe they uh haven't read given, but they know the the basic argument and and kind of the idea is that Christianity is played the central role in the decline and fall and and I think what people would say is, well, Christianity appeared, and this great empire crashed and burned, and if you talk about it being spread over eight hundred years, it's more like shifts in currents of thought, or it's it's more of an ocean liner moving than a speedboat spinning around.
1: Yeah, and, and it's certainly true. I mean, Gibbon was motivated by this anti-Catholicism of a lot of the ruling elites of Britain in the 18th century, cer- certainly on the heels of the revolutions and civil wars of the 17th century. So he kind of looked at the decline of of the western roman empire is partly a product of both the the unraveling of civic ties and virtues and the rise of catholicism although it wasn't called catholicism then but what's again odd about his his lens and scrim is that the eastern empire was was an eastern orthodox empire where yes there's there are substantial differences between sort of western latinate christendom as it evolves and and the eastern orthodox rites marriage of priests being one notable one but they're all you know there's a whole series of of differentials there nonetheless orthodox christianity was a fundamental pillar of, of byzantium and they thrived for hundreds of years um with Greek rather than Latin as the as the predominant language, which Gibbon knew, but but I think he was looking at it as as the ultimate other. Uh, he he also writes a lot about the rise of Islam, which I found fascinating because you know he's he's actually quite good about that. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you feel like when you're putting together a history book, you need to have a a strong argument, and and that that kind of makes the narrative cohere?
1: I do, and I've gotten <clears throat> some criticism for that. I mm-hmm. think you know meaning. There are people who feel pretty strongly that uh, history should tell a story, but should not have an agenda. Mm. Um, And I respect that. I think that's a a legitimate way of of saying that history ought to be written. Uh, I think history is more interesting when it has a viewpoint in that I don't really believe it's easy to say what's objective about the truth of the past. It may be objective to identify events happening that we know happened in time on date certain. But how one understands and articulates those is a subject of constant ongoing revisionism. Mm. You know, the idea that history doesn't repeat itself, but historians repeat each other, you know, that we're all in the process of trying to figure out who we are. We do this with our own individual past, you know, who you what you thought about your past at 30 or 20 is not the same as maybe what you think about your past at 40 or 50 in light of subsequent events. I always joke that nobody should ever claim that they're a good parent. You should ask your children after the age of 35 and even then. So, uh, oh, I, no. I know, I <laughs> know now I'm worried. Yeah, well, you know, join the club, uh, pay for the therapy bills, but a little fun to I think that history is that has a viewpoint I prefer. Mm-hmm. Meaning, I, I, I like the idea that a that an historian has entered into the topic with a purpose, mm-hmm. um, and that that purpose is apparent and clear, as opposed to, you know, just the facts, ma'am.
0: Yeah. Well, it it seems like the agenda it would be maybe a, a an invisible agenda or something. But if you're if you're not providing a compendium, if you're telling a story, and if you're attempting to answer the question of why or why this matters, it seems like you have to have something of an agenda or, you know, like how do you know what to select and what to leave out?
1: Right. And But often that's driven by some notion of, I want to contribute an aspect of the past that someone else hasn't done, right? Mm. Unearth the new. And for the past 20, 30 years, often that's meant telling stories of, of characters who had been faceless, nameless, and voiceless. You know, history from the bottom up, history of of not the great man and great woman, but of the people or mm-hmm. of groups and movements or of ideas, which has been great. I mean, it's filled and fleshed out our understanding of the past. Um, so that can be an agenda as well. You know, simply I'm going to I'm gonna tell the stories that haven't been told. I'm gonna to find the aspects of the past that have not had light shed upon them. Uh, And I'm going to add my brick to the wall of knowledge. That's not primarily what I'm driven by. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I mean, yes, I, I probably in the greater scheme of things, uh, lots of people like to read books on Lincoln. So there's lots of books on Lincoln published. I I don't know that we need another hundred books on Lincoln every year. And if you look it up, it's probably in the dozens, even from major publishers. So, yeah, I think there are things we probably rehash a little bit too much. I mean, there's a market incentive for doing so. Uh, and there are things we could focus on a little bit more. They're probably a rather really you know, speaking of Japan, right? There are probably a lot of really good English language books that could be written about various aspects of Japanese history that would be entertaining and interesting and compelling. But they they don't have a sufficient audience outside of academia, so they don't they don't get published. And mm. we have to, that's just part of the mix.
0: Do you feel like the market drives uh, historians who are looking to reach a a broader audience than academia? It drives them toward kind of hot takes, so to speak, or, you know, everybody thinks this is why X happened. I'm going to tell you that it's actually because of Y or... Totally. yeah, Yeah. Totally.
1: And also, look, Publishing is faddish. Something works and everybody goes, Oh, how do we do that? So yeah, you know, right. Simon Winchester writes just The Professor say. and the Madman, <laughs> and then suddenly there's fifty books on, you know, the obscure story of the person you hadn't heard of who did X in yeah. a way that was very dramatic. And yeah. Simon's great. I mean, he he reviewed one of my books brilliantly. And I then didn't fully reciprocate and and reviewed one of his books lukewarmly, which I always feel somehow bad about, but hmm. yeah, yet I was being honest. Um and, and he's had an amazing career and and, and is a lovely man. And uh, uh, when Dar- Dava Sobel published her book uh, Longitude, you know, about the great discovery that yep. changed the world, suddenly there were like, you know, 50 books about the obscure Renaissance scientists who discovered plutonium or you know platinum yeah. or whatever whatever they discovered that we hadn't realized they discovered right and, and then that peters out and that's just the way you know that's the way publishing works but if you're someone who wants to get a book contract um you are to some degree the product of your moment when editors are trying to figure out what's going to sell and so you you kind of triangulate there look academia has its own aspect of this mm. if You want to get a mm-hmm. job in a history department or a classics department or something, you know, you're not going to write a biography of Ben Franklin because that's not what's going to get you tenure these days. Mm, right. Write a biography of, of, uh, uh, Ben Franklin's, you know, hidden, uh, freed slave mistress. I don't I'm, that, I'm making yeah. this up. Right. And, and I'm not just so everyone is clear. I'm not saying that at all pejoratively. I'm just saying descriptively, right. You, you don't go to the great man. You go to the un, un, un examined aspects of history.
0: I saw a headline just yesterday or the day before that said Ben Franklin's recipe for abortion. Yeah. And that seems like, uh, you know, a book about that would probably be uh, something you could probably pitch these days.
1: Right. Because it would be in sync with kind of contemporary interests, mm-hmm. just like contemporary interests in the, you know, when the Book of the Month Club was a big deal in the 50s and 60s was kind of grand narrative. People who are of a certain age remember Will and Ariel Durant's story of civilization, (laughs) which professional historians hated because some of which it was cribbed and plagiarized and wrong. Uh, (laughs) But it was that kind of big, sweeping, synthetic narrative of who we've been and and how we are. Although even today, some of those books sell, uh, you know, big narrative history like The Silk Road by Peter Frank Hmm. obviously continues to sell. Is
0: there a type of book that you wish you could write if only there were a market for
1: it? I have certainly had topics that I was interested in writing that I couldn't convince the editors that I wanted to work with that it was worth paying me to do it. But the flip side (laughs) of that is uh, I'm not that committed to any one idea. Uh, Mm. And there's a lot of things I like. To delve into that are in sync with both my skills and whatever those might be, and my interests and my passions. So, uh, I've tended to want to find something that works for a publisher and for me, or that works for me and for a publisher. And I haven't found that process particularly difficult. I, you know, I have wondered about if you had just, if I had been able to say, okay, I'm just going to write what I think is important that I think will sell and then found a publisher. You know, I wanted to write a book a couple of years ago called everybody calm down just about and and look at 10 different things that people were hysterical about from uh, health to technology to the rise of China to drugs and just kind of look at that all in the light of how human beings react fearfully to the new and to the unknown. Um, but I hadn't, you know, I didn't have a legacy of writing that kind of book and no one was jumping up and down going, yes, you should write that book. Should I have written that book? I don't know because I didn't write it. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not in love with any of my books such that if I don't do it, there's this sense of loss or absence. I'm, I am in love with the process of writing and communicating and have a wide range of interests and also a wide range of things that I'm not interested about. You know, I'm not writing a book about horticulture anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I haven't found that as problematic, but I, I'm sure there are some books I would have written that I didn't write because I couldn't engage someone to be as passionate about publishing it as I was theoretically passionate about writing it.
0: Mm. But you don't feel, for example, like, oh, what I really want to do is write a a thousand-page book that would go so deep into a subject that would just be, you know, like the exhaustive account of it or something, but nobody wants to read those books. They want a a shorter and and more readable uh, format. Or There isn't a type of history that you wish you were working on.
1: No, and I, I don't. I don't love thousand-page books. Mm-hmm. Given, given, notwithstanding. Yeah. Um. My my patience for really, really long books is is minimal, yeah. and has gotten minimal Yeah. <laughs> as time <laughs> has gone on, uh, and there are always exceptions to that rule, of course. But you know, most books shouldn't be a thousand pages long. Yeah. Uh, and many books shouldn't even be books. They should be long articles, except the fact that nobody publishes long articles anymore. So (sighs) there you have it. Um, No, I have not found that yet.
0: You know what I did once? uh, This will sort of uh, confirm your suspicion. I I had like a year where I was working at this job that happened to be across the street from a public library. And I would go every day at lunch hour just to use up my time. And uh, I would check out 10 books every day and haul them home. And then at night, I would just read the introduction and sometimes the introduction and the first chapter. And then the next day, I would take all 10 books back and get 10 new ones. And it felt like I was kind of getting what I needed from those books.
1: That reminds me of uh, the Billy Crystal character when Harry met Sally, who every time he picks up a new novel, reads the last five pages. (laughs) uh, And someone says, well, why are you doing that? You're you're giving away the ending, and he says, "You know, I want to know how the book ends in case I die." <laughs> so, it's kind of apropos. Okay. Well,
0: what I, I want to ask you about your podcast: what can go right? And and I know some of your other works. You you've mentioned a a kind of book that would tell everyone to take things in perspective and calm down. But it seems like you're you also have a a spirit of hope or a, a search for optimism that runs through some of your projects. Is that fair to say?
1: Totally fair to say. And I I created this thing called The Progress Network, which was a a nonprofit platform that would amplify other people's voices, many of whom are quite prominent. If you go onto the site, it's just theprogressnetwork.org. But then we also started creating a little more original content in the same spirit, including... The podcast "What Could Go Right," which we're in the second season of, and has gotten some traction, which has been great, uh, and a newsletter called "What Could Go Right" as well. And it's kind of a self-explanatory title, in that everyone's always asking what could go wrong, and mm. you know we're not asking enough the alternate question, what could go right. And none of that, by the way, you know my my version of optimism is not is not a rose-tinted Pollyannish wow things are great. It's we do spend a lot of time looking at what's wrong and we do spend a lot of time considering what could go wrong. And we do spend a lot of energy anticipating all of these problems. And we probably should spend some of the energy doing that, but we should also spend energy looking at what we're doing to solve problems. We should spend energy, uh, to, I spoke earlier about that connective tissue between the past, present and the future. And I feel very strongly, uh, which Carl Popper wrote about and other people have wrote about that. none of us know the future. Uh, We barely know the past. We only have slivers of awareness of a really noisy, messy present. But we're all responsible in our own way for designing and writing and living the future, meaning we are all responsible for the future that we are going to be in based on decisions we make today. Mm. And optimism in part is the understanding of we may have a lot of problems, but what are we doing to solve them? And a lot of us are doing a lot of incredible work to solve problems that admittedly, we have all collectively created, right? Climate and environment is a, is a problem we've created and is a problem we're trying to solve. Um, and I think focusing more on that and on voices that speak more from a sensibility of hope rather than fear, uh, a sensibility of calm rather than outrage, these are important things to cultivate that don't easily get cultivated. Podcasts are a great form of it. And the fact that podcasts have been so successful in gaining massive millions and millions and millions of listeners, I think suggests that people do crave a different cadence, a different sensibility, a mm. different way of thinking about the present, thinking about the world. Uh, so I, I have conversations like you do with people I think are compelling along the, the spirit of, yes, let's look at what's not working. But let's look at it from the, the spirit of what we can do to make it work. You know, let's create the future of our hopes, not of our fears. And that having these conversations is one element in in that work.
0: Mm. And I know people used to blame newspapers. They used to blame the local news that they would, you know, report on a fire and not on the, you know, 100 good things that happened that day or something. It seems like the Internet does something similar <laughs> Where I'll my my timeline will be filled with people outraged about something that happened in a school district, you know, sort of an isolated incident in one state, in one town in one state, and those things are important, and I certainly am am, uh, you know, want to be cautious about trends and things like that. But at the same time, you know, there's so much going on, and if all of us are focused on, the one local problem somewhere, we might miss the bigger picture of great movements that are happening uh, you know, right under our noses that don't get that kind of
1: attention. It, that's exactly right. And I do think news and media bear a responsibility, but it's not a responsibility that they can do much to change mm. in that it has always been true, the old adage in newsrooms was, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. And that has been hypercharged in social media and Internet where we talk about clickbait and we talk about what animates human behavior. It's almost always hot emotions, Uh, you know, excitement, outrage, fear, uh, lurid curiosity. So sex, you know, things that are that are of immediacy as opposed to. The, the stances and the places that we probably need to be in to solve things longer term. And that's just the nature of, of these mediums. And to some degree, it's a nature of human beings. The, mm. the Tolstoy, Anna and a line, there are no novels about a happy family. Mm. And, you know, the great thing about reading an, an 18th century historian like Gibbon is that it's it, when there weren't a lot of other mediums, people did in fact have a bit more time to digest more complicated longer form stories which you know just by nature are force you to think, force you to be a little more contemplative, force you to take a step outside and and ponder. There's nothing pondering about Twitter, right? No one, no one, no one says, you know what, I'll I'll, let me come back to that tweet. Let me think about it. Right. I'll sit with it for a little bit. Um, because by the time you come back, it's gone. Yeah. Drowned out by a sea of other tweets. And all i feel i can do is try to be an alt voice to that as are you and and there are there is a real audience for it it's just a different audience that has a different cadence that goes at a different pace and doesn't prove its traction immediately yeah. um and that's fine
0: yeah often i'll i'll look at an author in the past and i'll think oh he or she would have been a brilliant On Twitter, or would have been a wonderful podcaster. I don't feel that way about Gibbon.
1: Yeah, yeah, he would have. (laughs) Although he was very quippy, apparently. Um, Right. Meaning, like at a dinner party. Yeah. Um, And uh, he was also apparently, you know, an intensely, intensely unattractive, unappealing human Ah. as a person. Yeah. Um, Like not not really someone you you actually would have wanted to meet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as, as a person, um, they okay. say. Well, you know, let's yeah. let's
0: let's leave things there. The book, uh, one of the the more recent books, is called Inside Money. The podcast is called What Could Go Right. Zachary Carabell, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature.
1: Thank you, Jackie.
0: Hmm. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Zachary Carabel for being here. Do check out his many books and his many other writings and commentary and, of course, his podcast, What Could Go Right. We could all use a little glass half-fulling now and then, especially from someone with big ideas and the, the brains and background to support them. Rich food for the mind indeed. And my thanks to Edward Gibbon. Read some of him if you get the chance. Speaking of rich mind food... He is a delight. So, who's on our calendar? More delights coming up. We're toward the end of the month, so we have a best-of episode on Thursday, Books I Have Loved, going deep into the archives. For these, we'll talk to three fiction writers about their favorite books, and we've got a Shakespeare scholar and a Hemingway scholar and some Dr. Seuss coming up. Mike Palindrome will be here for some Ulysses talk and a look at the four-pronged objection People had to novels when they came out. That's with a different guest. The attack on novels, morality, or should I say immorality, was one of them. That was the one I guessed. There were also three others. So please do subscribe so you don't miss that conversation. What a cliffhanger that is. (laughs) What does it mean for a society to embrace change? And what is behind their rejection of it? The answer might surprise you, or at least it surprised me. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.